Welcome back to episode 99 of I'd Rather Be Reading, where today on the show we have Maggie Bullock, author of The Kingdom of Prep, the inside story of the rise and near fall of J. Crew. Yes, we are talking fashion today, a favorite topic of mine. J. Crew is 40 years old this year, founded in 1983, and went from the highest of highs as the original lifestyle brand to filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2020. Maggie and I talk about the company, the personalities within it, like Jenna Lyons and Mickey Drexler, and prep as an overall concept. This is the first time J. Crew's story has been told in this way, and this book captures a quintessentially American fashion narrative. It's so good. In fact, The Kingdom of Prep is one of Vogue's most anticipated books of 2023, so don't just take my word for it. Maggie is a seasoned fashion journalist, a former editor at Vogue before serving as deputy editor at Elle for eight years from 2010 to 2018, overseeing fashion and beauty coverage. Now a freelance journalist, she's written cover stories and features for the aforementioned Vogue and Elle, and also Vanity Fair, The Atlantic, T, The New York Times Style Magazine, Marie Claire, and New York Magazine, and she writes a recurring personal finance column for New York Magazine's The Cut called How I Got This Money. She also publishes a newsletter called The Spread, which you can find at www.thespread.media. It is also so good, where Maggie and co-founder Rachel Baker scour the internet for us to find the week's best articles written by, for, or about women. Let's dig right on into the story of J. Crew. You will enjoy this conversation. Maggie, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to the show. I'm really excited to talk all things J. Crew. Just for the record, you are wearing J. Crew. So That's it's correct. very on brand and very <laughs> tied together with the bow. So how are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here to talk about. I also would rather be reading. In me fact, too, maybe always. we should just stop and read. But yeah, um, <laughs> let's, just, let's just walk off and just go back to your book. <laughs> it's a it's a great title. I, I the gist of it is is right up my alley. So I'm very I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, you have been reporting on J. Crew for a while now. So how did you get started in the reportage of of this story, and what piqued your interest in the company? Yeah. So I'm a freelance journalist. I worked at Elle for many, many years. And when mm -hmm. I went freelance, one of the first pieces I wrote was actually for T, the New York Times Style magazine. Yeah, uh -huh. it, it was the first story about Jenna Lyons's new house. You know how her houses have been mm -hmm. um, like cult beloved interiors. It's mm -hmm. the weirdest thing. Like people people mimic her interior design as much as her fashion. So mm -hmm. that was, so I met her, went to her Prince or Soho apartment. And then uh, in 2019, Vanity Fair hired me to write a story. And I, I, my line on that is that the title of the story kind of says it all. The title of the story was Jay who with mm. a question mark on the end, because at the time um, the company was really lost. Um, it had no, discernible point of view it had been through a lot of executive turnover and there was a sense that this golden brand of kind of the obama era and beyond was lost it didn't make a lot of sense why so mm -hmm. that was where i started thinking um more professionally about j crew i will say i've been thinking 
um, about J. Crew since I was about 11 years old on some level, mm -hmm. um, which Have the, we book, all. <laughs> the book um, isn't a personal story, but my own narrative like drops in here and there a little bit. Right. Um, and so in a weird way, the Vanity Fair piece was um, kind of forced me to crystallize some thoughts that had always been in my head about this brand and the role it played in american fashion and style and our psyche and our aspirations and uh, uh, uh. so yeah it really got my wheels spinning you know what i just realized as you were speaking i definitely never aspire to be a name dropper but i have actually interviewed jenna lyons for a story as well and i kind of forgotten not that she's forgettable in any way she's fantastic and she was actually so kind and generous and um so there's my little j crew there you, you know, go anecdote of my own but you obviously have you know have reported on them for years and years and and you asked this question in the book and it's a fair one what was it about j crew so i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you your own question what was j crew's magic because i you know i we all maybe not all of us but a lot of us have our J Crew story of our own, you know, it's just was such a iconic brand. And when you wore J Crew, you really felt like you fit in, like you were in, as your book's called the kingdom of prep. And we'll talk more about all, that, about all of this, but what is J Crew's magic? If you could crystallize it. Um, great question. And I wish I had like a one sentence soundbite. I should probably have that note to self. Um, what I think <laughs> it is about J Crew is that a, it's, I'm gonna have to do A, B's and C's. A, it tapped into a, a huge part of American heritage by being based on um, the sort of canon of preppy, right? Which is really baked into American society and started on the campuses of Ivy League colleges in the 1920s. So like what J. Crew did in some ways was not original. And in some ways it was very original because it put those clothes into this context through the catalog that was both aspirational and relatable you could imagine yourself that that j crew life for some of us not for everyone was just beyond the reach of your fingertips right there was something kind of magical about the way the clothes were presented mm -hmm. um that made you want i mean in the 80s and 90s when when they would show a picture in j crew of a girl holding you know like i don't know wearing a sweater or holding a teacup you know people would call up and they would want the teacup like they wanted everything about that and i feel like <clears throat> then the jenna c <laughs> then the jenna lyons mickey drexler era came along and they completely redefined the brand while still keeping some of that dna intact and um it was associated with the obamas and with this like progressive future honestly mm -hmm. um and so and and d <laughs> i would say that j crew in its way was for a lot of its life like a really peerless company there it's hard to think of who their direct competitor would have been mm -hmm. um and so they really just stood out by being i think really in lockstep like aesthetically as a company and producing an image that um i don't know just really hit home with people
Well, the company eventually went from the highest of highs to filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, but you write in the book, the pandemic shutdown was not the cause of J. Crew's problems. It was more like a final straw. The company had suffered extensive pre-existing conditions for years, crushing debt, a spin cycle of failed execs, irate customers, decrying problems of quality, fit, pricing, lackluster clothes, and a major identity crisis. How could this happen to a company people once loved. So again, as you ask, you ask the question, the best questions in the book, but I'm turning them all back on you. Why couldn't J. Crew get it together? Because it seems like they had the recipe for eternal success. Why couldn't, why couldn't they get it together? So again, I think that they were um, a victim of industry forces and their own internal forces. Um, Industry-wise, what we were seeing is what has what is usually referred or widely referred to as the retail apocalypse, which (laughs) sounds um, almost too uh, hyperbolic to be true, but really it's a, it's a, it's a, so many forces coming together. Um, The arrival of fast fashion, uh, the switch to a digital audience and really like this, um, that was a slow burn to to there was a day suddenly where it seemed that people were really shopping from their phones it wasn't just like going online it was like being um phone based and and j crew just wasn't set up for that as a company they had not um pivoted to the degree that they needed to to become a digital first brand around 2017 2018 2019 when these things were really like sinking in that you had to be this they weren't that i really think that they were a victim of their own success because Mm. when you're like on top of the world and you know the harvard harvard business school types are saying well if you really want to get ahead you need to be digital first like are you really going to stop what you're doing to become that when everything you do, you know, when you have the Midas touch? No. And so there was that, this sort of larger industry picture. But then there were also um, Mickey Drexler, the longtime CEO of J. Crew, had um, taken the company into a financial deal that saddled it with an enormous amount of debt. Mm-hmm. And they had that Obama era, um, I keep saying Obama, I think it's really Obama's and beyond era mm-hmm. aesthetic that was like the mix and match. Well, on the women's side, it was like the mix and match and the pencil skirts and the glittery Mary Janes and the statement necklaces. And it just stopped working, like fashion turned. And J. Crew was so identified with that look that they really didn't know what was next. They didn't have a next step that, that you know, they tried next steps, but those those ideas didn't really resonate with their customer. So mm-hmm. again, like it was this industry-wide problem and they were no different from anybody else. And then it was a J. Crew problem of debt and like a outdated look that they failed to get ahead of. And that mm-hmm. is what led them to. So they were the first company to declare bankruptcy during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of people thought at the time there's going to be no more J. Crew. I think we don't often, oftentimes people don't really know what bankruptcy means. You know, like, mm-hmm. does that mean the company is going to go under? Mm-hmm. Um, 
but really they were the the reason they were the first is because they were in such a precarious place before the pandemic shut down yeah and you can you know this better than i but they declared bankruptcy so early on in the pandemic it couldn't have been because of the pandemic right, right? it was right. like it was too soon like nobody nobody's tide could shift as quickly as that did and so yeah you're right it, i like how you call it a pre-existing condition but I want to back up even before J. Crew was founded in 1983. Let's talk prep for a moment. So you write prep was a new word for a very old theme. Strivers had long masked the anxiety of improving one's station in life by adopting the look of belonging, the look that made them fit at the country club, the sorority house. You could argue this need to be part of the crowd was anything but frivolous. It was a biological need, pure survival instinct, a way to feel somehow safe. That's beautifully written. And so how did J. Crew come to embody the ethos of prep? Well, so in 1983, what was happening it really in from the late 70s into the 80s is into the early 80s is that this idea of the preppy was crystallized. Um, mm -hmm. The preppy handbook was published. And before that book came along, um, the look was widely it was associated with the Ivy League. It was associated with a certain set of people, but we didn't really have a shorthand for it. We didn't have a, a name for who those people were. Um, in the 80s, this subculture really rose to the fore and it was, um, gosh, so many factors again, but like Ronald Reagan was president and it was the dawn of a new era and people were making money and it didn't look it didn't feel bad to look like you wanted to make money right like there was a whole shift in psychology Greed um, is good in wall street and gordon gecko of the 80s right. all of it all of it and so um i totally have lost the plot of your actual question though because i just like went <laughs> yeah. deep on no 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 you're nailing it how did j crew embody the ethos of prep like how did j crew fit into this this whole idea of prep Right. So what J. Crew did when they were introduced in 1983 was, to be honest, in the very beginning, the goal was to sell the Ralph Lauren look at a cheaper price, right? Uh -huh. Like to make the Ralph Lauren look was the hottest thing going. And but it was already expensive. It was already out of touch for for the young people, like the college age people who really wanted that look. So <clears throat> J. Crew set out to sell it at a cheaper price. That only took them so far right like that struck a nerve in the culture it it kind of gave them a foothold but like you can't go through your life being ralph light so <laughs> within a few years they developed an aesthetic that was very much their own and that evolved away from that origin um which is they took the basic building blocks of what i would call like a new england weekender wardrobe right mm -hmm. like good sweaters, uh, chinos, it's never khakis at J. Crew. chinos, um, <laughs> pocket t-shirts, you know, just kind of like non-spectacular clothes, like not, not really that newsworthy clothes, but they did them very well. And then they presented them, as I mentioned earlier, in this catalog that was unlike any catalog anyone had really seen before, because it took the the production value of like a fashion shoot and um, 
added in like all of these kind of destin American destinations, Cape Cod, the Hamptons, mm -hmm. uh, the, I mean, this is before the Hamptons were the Hamptons, mm -hmm. um, like Utah, like whatever, just amazing sort of landscapes. And they put these people in these clothes and they made somehow the full picture of the clothes plus the beautiful people plus the environment feel like a version of preppy that was very palatable because it didn't mm -hmm. feel elitist, but it certainly was underpinned by this uh, vibe of, I guess, not elitism, but privilege. Absolutely. And I want to quote you here of its founding, you write that they were that they meaning J crew were reasonably competent. We didn't have a complete dud, but we weren't so sure we had a success. You also write when a brand catches fire, even the people who lit it can never be sure exactly what caused the conflagration. So when it comes to what captured the world's attention when it came to J Crew in the 80s, I think you've nailed that already. But how did J Crew become the original lifestyle brand? And what is a lifestyle brand in the first place? Well, I think a lifestyle brand is um, one that is selling you more than the item that's for sale on the page, right? Yeah, They're selling ethos. you an ethos, a way mm -hmm. of being in the world. Um, in J. Crew's case, this was like very poignantly the thing with them. And the re the reason they knew that it had hit, right? Like the they weren't exactly sure what it was, but there was it was uh it was on fire, right? <laughs> the right. conflagration the conflagration was there achieved, was that people on college campuses were devouring these catalogs like I don't like romance novels, you know, like they waited for them. They yanked them out of the mailbox. They took them back to their dorm rooms. They dog-eared every page. Like it became a cult. And the people in the company who had been working there for years, like trying to make this little catalog company go were like, suddenly they could see their look on the streets of Manhattan and mm -hmm. on every college campus. And, you know, there was just a sense that this thing had caught on which in fashion is really the magical feeling that you're looking for right when you can look yeah. out into the world and you see the thing that existed only in your own little bubble mm -hmm. is suddenly like adopted and it's part of the culture that reminds the j crew catalog of the 80s reminds me of my abercrombie and fitch and my delius catalogs of the 90s totally I used to wait at the mailbox for the delius catalog that was all I cared about was just just tearing through it and those those days are so long gone it, but the kids today she said at 36 years old sounding very old <laughs> we'll, we'll never know how how that felt to get that in the mail but you write j crew is in fact almost a perfect microcosm of how shopping itself has evolved over the past 40 years and how we as consumers have evolved too i would love it if you could unpack that for us Right. So when I set out to tell the story of J. Crew, I didn't realize I was basically going to be writing like a business slash fashion history in a way book mm -hmm. that, sorry, that makes it sound dry. It's not that dry. No, it's anything but dry. It is, it's, 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 it's super compelling. 
But what I realized is that you couldn't tell the story of the brand without explaining all of the context that was happening behind the brand and around it that was causing it to evolve in the ways that it did. So so it came out of the 80s catalog boom, which is just I was so fascinated by these kind of details. Like the reason there was a catalog boom in the 80s was it had to do with everything from like we we started using zip codes in the 60s. So it became cheaper to me. I mean, just like really kind of absurd reasons that you wouldn't think of that added up to this huge, like the biggest boom of the catalog ever. Mm -hmm. And another piece of it was that women were not more women were in the workplace, more women were viewing their work as a career, not a stopgap between school and having a family. And they didn't have time to shop in stores. So yeah. like a catalog, which came conveniently to their home and could be perused at any time of day, made a ton of sense back then. So anyway, J. Crew, uh, uh, tapped the catalog boom. That was its whole reason for being really. They saw this business thing coming, this opportunity, and they wanted to get into, you know, catch that wave. Mm -hmm. Then by the 90s, the early 90s, like gap is king. And there are more malls than you can count across America. And there's a gap in every mall. There's a limited in every mall. There's this whole phenomenon of these specialty retail brands, which at the time were super exciting we had never seen before the 80s and then by the 90s they were really peaking we had never seen these brands that were so unified where you know the quality and the branding and the sort of image and the store design and the music in the store and everything was all part of a whole right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so then j cruz started doing stores obviously you couldn't just be a catalog anymore you had to be a store then around, I don't know, 97, the internet is, there's something called the quote unquote internet store that you can be on. And J.Crew was one of the first brands of its ilk to get online. And then into the 2010s, suddenly again, like people are shopping, they're not even bothering to go to their, their computers, they're shopping straight from their phones. Like the way in which we consume is, is really the backdrop for the whole story of any of these brands during that time because they're trying to move and pivot to mm -hmm. wherever the customer is, you know, to meet the customer where they're at. Well, if J. Crew, we've already mentioned these names a couple of times, but if J. Crew's story could be defined by two people, those two people would, of course, be Mickey Drexler and Jenna Lyons. So for the listeners who maybe don't follow fashion like we do, although those names are so ubiquitous that I, I think that they go beyond people that follow fashion, but um, especially Jenna Lyons. But who are Mickey Drexler and Jenna Lyons and how did they contribute to J. Crew's story? And then I'll follow up with this, but how did they leave J. Crew? So basically, who are they? How did they contribute to J. Crew? And what, how, what was their exit? From the company. Well, I mean, simply put, they're two of the most uh, influential and also interesting characters in American they really retail. Are. Yeah. I mean, they are, right? The more I learned about them, the more I was like, these are larger than life people. There's a reason Absolutely. why they got so famous. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so let's start with Mickey because everybody wants to talk about Jenna. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mickey mm -hmm. Drexler uh, was the man who built the gap into being like this insane mega corporation in the 80s and 90s. There was a point at which there was a gap on every corner in America, it seemed, mm -hmm. and they were opening Gap Inc., which he also uh, 
old Navy was Mickey's brainwave. Mm -hmm. So if you count in Gap Inc., you have Gap, Old Navy, and Banana Republic. Between Mm -hmm. the three of them, there was a point at which they were opening a store somewhere in the world every single day. The size of this company cannot be over-exaggerated. Mickey was very much at the helm of that. he came to J. Crew, however, because the Gap hit hard times. He got ousted from the Gap. And when he came to J. Crew, it was really a comeuppance because he was sort of the king of retail. For him to be working at a company like J. Crew, which was relatively tiny compared to the Gap, was uh, the greatest thing that ever happened to J. Crew, but not great on paper for Mickey. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so he came in. And he did effectively and rapidly turn J. Crew around. J. Crew was struggling. It was 2003. Uh, they were really in dire straits. I, I, this happens to every retailer. It's a cyclical thing. But he came in as a last-ditch effort to really save the company from going under. And within three years, he took it public. So Mickey is does have this wild Midas touch. He also brings to the companies where he works his very distinctive work culture, which we could talk about later. But let me tell you about Jenna because you asked about Jenna. Mm -hmm. Jenna Lyons is, to me, for my money, like the most unique phenomenon of a a fashion celebrity that I can (laughs) think of, really. Mm -hmm. Because the short line on her is that she worked her entire career at one company as much as you and I may love J crew in the fashion sphere it is it's I mean it's what shall I say it's not Givenchy you know what I mean it's not the it's, it's not. not the upper tier of fashion it's not the tier of fashion that typically produces fashion stars mm-hmm. Jenna started there in 1991 I want to say straight out of college she worked there her entire career when Mickey came on board he spotted her as a major talent and he let her run Uh, eventually over time he let her run with the company she transformed it and in the meantime she made herself one of the or j crew made her slash she made herself one of the most recognizable names and faces in american fashion it is like a completely unheard of origin story that somebody on the red carpet at the met ball on the cover of magazines is coming out of a catalog company. It's like kind of a crazy one once in a lifetime thing. So that's a no. Go ahead. That's the that's as short as I can make the Mickey Mickey you don't and Jenna have to story be, you because don't have I to be short at all. because I find them so fascinating. No, I think I mean there, there's no way that anybody wouldn't find them fascinating. I you mentioned this. I'd love to hear what what is Mickey's work style. What's it like to work for Mickey Drexler? Well, he's intense in a word. Um, and he's a real character. And as mm-hmm. much as Jenna likes attention, I think Mickey likes it just as much, if not more. Um, and so the way that he announced his uh, sort of made his presence known in J. Crew the minute he took over was installing this intercom system in the office, which became infamous in the industry. It, it was basically like the equivalent of your high school principal's voice over the loudspeaker in a company <laughs> piped into every corner of the company and he squawked into it all day long and he would 
<laughs> dial into it from whomever, like whatever fancy person he happened to be hanging out with. Oh, I'm hanging out with Pharrell. Let's call the company together. Oh, I'm listening to this new spring scene song on my iPod. This is the, you know, you have to be uh, We're dating ourselves, but yes. <laughs> right. On my iPod. Well, let me just play it for the whole company. Uh, I'm, I'm walking into the Rockefeller Center store and I'm talking to the salesperson here and they're saying that this sweater is really hot. I mean, literally all day long, his voice could be heard over the intercom. And to me, that is both wildly disruptive and also <laughs> really uh, indicative of how he was able to so rapidly take over a company, become the the sort of center of everything that happened there. You know, he he um he didn't have time to mess around when he came to J. Crew. The company was on the verge of going under. So he needed to make himself like the nerve center of the whole operation. He couldn't just be the CEO sitting up in the corner office with no idea who anybody was, mm -hmm. waiting for people to answer his questions. He wanted the answers right then. So if you could tolerate living in Mickey's world, you could really respect him as like the best in the business. There's a lot of people who couldn't, who can't live that way. Right. Well, both are no longer with the company, spoiler alert. So what, what, <laughs> what was their, what, what happened? What, why are they no longer there? Well, both are no longer with the company. I want to say first that that's not unusual and that Jenna lasted now I'm thinking, is it 26 or 27 years? An unheard of That's length really of time at impression. one brand. Mm -hmm. So, and and many people felt that once she was in the top seat, that really they're a fashion business by its very nature needs turnover. You need fresh blood because you need to be yeah. able to move on to the next thing, to pivot, to re redefine yourself, you know, like you need a new vision. So anyway, they're no longer at the company, but I think like Jenna in particular had a marathon stint there. Um, mm -hmm. But so in 2017, after several years now of bad press, bad numbers, you know, bad quarterly reports, um, like stories in the New York Times actually calling for J. Crew to replace Jenna in so many words. Mm -hmm. uh, and Jenna left the brand and soon thereafter, Mickey stepped down. He stayed on the board um, during the reign of the next CEO, but he was still involved in the company for a few years beyond Jenna, but he was not there in a day-to-day -day sense. And their reign ended in 2017. Well, then three years later, of course, at the top of the show, we mentioned this, they filed for J, they, J. Crew, not Mickey and Jenna, they were gone already, but uh, they filed for bankruptcy. So post-bankruptcy filing nearly three years ago, where does the company stand today? Because it did not go under, it still exists. So where where's J. Crew at today in 2023? Well, it's such an interesting time, actually. Like it so happened, you know, well, the funny thing, just to bring it back to me, <laughs> the funny <laughs> thing is that I um, sold the book proposal for this in January, 2020, like, and then um, six weeks later, 
the whole world came crashing to an end. Mm -hmm. And J. Crew became the first company to declare bankruptcy in the pandemic, as we've They're all- Serendipitous indeed. Right. And I thought, okay, is this book a retrospective? Like, I really didn't, nobody knew if J. Crew would sort of live to fight another battle. Mm -hmm. um, what has happened though, thank goodness for me because i was able to buy this chambray shirt just a few weeks ago um, it's very cute by the way. is that they um they restructured their debt they got out from under their previous financial partners and really like people say oh they've got new creative talent they like the number one thing that is the reason you still have a j crew today is because they cleaned up some of the financial issues that they were under like they could not have survived without that so bankruptcy um helped them clear that out to a degree and then in the meantime they have hired new talent and i will now get around to the question you originally asked which is like in early 2023 they are really showing signs of a major revival the mm. fashion press is loving what they do um uh, the new female designer was just in a huge feature in Harper's Bazaar. Mm -hmm. There seems to be like, whoo, there seems to be some sort of even revival of prep as a trend happening, which, you know, works nicely for them. And so I, I don't know, it's it's looking really positive for them. I, I'm really hoping that they um, that this momentum keeps going. I have no idea, however, if if for a company like j crew which sells to mainstream america if the idea that they are back to being semi darlings in the fashion press really means that they have turned around the problems they had with their core customer and so i mean there is a real disconnect between that like it's all very well to have features in harper's bazaar but like are the people in minneapolis back to buying your clothes um does Harper's Bazaar, or let's not make it about Harper's Bazaar, does the the fashion establishment really move that needle for mainstream shoppers? Mm -hmm. um, this is the problem that J. Crew has always had, right? It was a fashion darling, but it was for a long time, it was a fashion darling, but it was actually losing its customer base from those core like bread and butter shoppers. So um, it, I think it's too early to say uh, if if this is like, it's back but certainly right. in a kind of like approval popularity rating <laughs> um that needle seems to have shifted back up they seem to be hot again you know i'm sitting here wondering will we if for all of its ups and all of its downs and all of its in-betweens will we ever see another j crew again will we ever see a company follow the trends of shopping, follow the trends of fashion so much like, like J. Crew did. Will there ever be another J. Crew? Um, my instinct is to say no, but I just like knowing what I now know about the history of retail, like there could be a brand founded now that follows the next 40, 50, 60 years of the different ways that we evolve as consumers. You know, like, I don't think that's out of the question. What I think is um, unlikely for J. Crew is that there was a point at which, and I would pin this to like the 2010, 2011, 2012, where it really felt like the dominant American brand. You know, mm -hmm. it was everywhere you looked. It was, and certainly, I don't want to be 
it was never accessible to the masses, but it was certainly like the most visible and let's put it like mass friendly brand um, of its ilk for a very long stretch. And my feeling as I write in the book is that I think J. Crew could become a profitable, profitable brand again. I think it be could become a popular brand again, but I just think retail and the places where we all shop is so fragmented now. It's hard for me to imagine like this sort of one master company, which is where you go get all of your things. And, you know, I just, I don't think we shop the same way anymore. Yeah. And so I don't see them occupying the, the spot that they once occupied. I, you know, I do think there's, they have a better shot in menswear because men really like being able to just reliably go to that one store. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that like for the J crew dude, they were just like waiting out this long, um, low period, like hoping that the brand got it together because J crew is just so convenient for guys, you right. know? Right. Um, I don't think women are as driven by that mentality, but what do you think? I don't think we'll ever see another J crew again. I, 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 um, I think that they were just so up their time, but I think. I'm I, honestly, I'm just, as, as you said it about J crew, my prior question before I asked whether we'll ever see another J crew again, you said it and you said they might not be back, but, and then I thought, well, they may not be fully back, but they're not gone. And that's right. just, that's just so telling of just how baked into our culture this brand is. And I don't want them to feel, I mean, I love their clothes. I still, I still shop J crew and you know, how often do you see that a brand that is accessible. I mean, I'm thinking like, let's think of Jackie Kennedy, you know, and Oleg Cassini was designing her. Okay. Well, flash forward to Michelle Obama. J crew was the house brand basically, as you write in the book of, of the Obama administration. And, and I could go buy J crew. I can't go. I couldn't in the sixties go buy, you know, Cassini. I can go buy J crew and, you know, dress in the same outfit potentially as the first lady in, you know, 2010 or 2011. I think that it's a very special company and I don't know if we'll ever see it a, a storyline like that, but no two brands are the same, but I just think that it's, I don't know. I mean, that that's why this book is so compelling is because there's just no other brand like it, you know, and, and I don't know if there ever will be. Well, that's nice of you to say. I think that that's true too, but then I've spent three years of my life and actually more than that thinking about this brand. I don't think there's another brand like it. I think like to me, the bottom line is always like, have I ever really cared who designed the clothes at Banana Republic or at right. the Gap? I mean, the Gap has had a few stints of guest designers, but you know, essentially, I've never been or old had navy. A Do I or care old navy. designing an old navy? No, not really. Right. No offense, but I, yeah. There's something about J. Crew that has a little bit of an elevated profile where right. you have the kind of interest in the company that we usually only have in high-end brands, right? Where we have a, right. we have a curiosity about what happens behind the curtain at J. Crew. We think of it in this like it is like a very singular um level really on the hierarchy of fashion brands um where we're can we're sort of used to thinking about it as having a quote unquote designer whereas we think of the gap or banana or whatever uh, old navy as you say as being sort of designed by these teams but not led mm -hmm. by a human 
person mm-hmm. that you could really connect with or aspire to be more importantly yeah like i don't think there's a face it's just to pick on old navy a little more i don't think there's a face of old navy like jenna was for me and j crew or mickey as well but i just yeah it's just it's it's so interesting because it's 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 so beyond fashion it's culture and it's it's just incredibly interesting and my last question for you is what do you hope readers ultimately take away from the book? What do you hope as they, as they close the book that they walk away thinking? Well, hmm, great question. Um, first of all, I would like them to understand a little bit more about the business and the forces around it so that you can understand that we can blame, you know, Jenna Lyons for the downfall of J. Crew, but after reading my book, you will see how many forces one individual person is really up against in trying to um, sustain a brand that's on fire, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, like, more than that, what I would really love to me, I reported this brand from a employee's eye view. You know, I I certainly spoke with. I spoke with more than 100 people researching the book, and I certainly spoke with many executives, but I also spoke with people in the trenches. And I feel like um, what I personally walked away with was an appreciation for the way that these people were driven by a passion for what they did just as much, if not more so than the people working in the ateliers of Paris. Like, I just think that um, high end, capital F fashion brands kind of get all the credit for having um, passion and having uh, vision and and having um, talent. And what I felt was that the people driving this mass brand that wanted to dress America at large were just as visionary, just as talented, just as passionate. And the task before them was, you might argue, a lot harder than for those niche fashion houses. Um, so I, I don't know, I just felt like a real love for the effort of making something that was as good as J. Crew was at a certain, at a couple of different points in history. This is such a good cultural snapshot of an iconic American brand. The book is called The Kingdom of Prep, The Inside Story of the Rise and Near Fall of J. Crew. It is out March 7th. Maggie, thank you so much for being here today. I am going to go pull out all of my J Crew out of my closet and just be <laughs> thankful that there is a J Crew in this world. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. I really enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Maggie. Again, the book is The Kingdom of Prep, the inside story of the rise and near fall of J. Crew. It came out March 7th, two days ago. And in addition to what's inside, the cover is really gorgeous. I am looking at it on my nightstand right now. We will be back with the landmark episode 100 on Sunday. Listeners, thank you for being there with me every step of the way to get to this milestone. Not many podcasts make it to triple digit episodes, but we did. And it's all thanks to you. Talk then. Thank you.